Welcome to Ozark Natural Foods, the co-op podcast featuring stories and information about the largest food co-op in Arkansas. Based in Fayetteville and serving all of Northwest Arkansas, the co-op has been around for 50 plus years, providing community and encouraging a love of food that is good for us and our planet. Learn our history and standards of quality. Meet our co-op members, employees, and vendors and understand why being locally focused is vital to our food, products, and economy. The co-op has leveraged cooperative economics here in Northwest Arkansas to bring the freshest and the best food to our whole community. Listen to Ozark Natural Foods, the co-op podcast today to learn why. Hey folks, and welcome back to another episode of ONF, the co-op podcast. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and I'm excited to be with you today for another new episode. Today we have Mark Kane, who is one of the founders and a gardener with Dripping Springs Farm. And uh, Mark is uh, here with us today to talk a little bit about his experience with the co-op and more importantly, the fact that, that he's had almost a generation of time providing organic vegetables culinary herbs, blueberries, and all kinds of specialty cut flowers to Ozark Natural Foods. And so if you've walked into the produce section, you've seen his product. If you have walked into our new location and seen the beautiful cut flowers there, you've seen his product. And so without further ado, I want to welcome Mark Kane to the podcast. How are you doing? Good. Thank you, Andy. Appreciate it. Nice to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So Mark, I would love for you just to kind of give your your origin story, and, and and you don't have to go back to birth, but you can just kind of <laughs> just give the audience just a little bit of background and history on you and, and how you ended up here in Northwest Arkansas. Well, see, Mike and I bought that property in 1984, but we both had backgrounds in uh, gardening. I was a biology student uh, long ago in college and started a little mini farm outside of the college town of Champaign, Illinois, where I was in a school with the University of Illinois. And at the end of that summer, I realized we had no idea what we were doing. We had (laughs) plenty of enthusiasm and no irrigation system and hardly any tools and a few seeds. And I think we ended up selling a a big pan of snow peas to the local food co-op that summer. And then went pretty much went broke at the end of it. And at that point, I said, I need to go get some training. And so I went out to California and um, apprenticed to Alan Chadwick, who is, uh, was a really well-known gardener out there who started the Farm and Garden Project at the University of California. Anyway, I was out there for a few years and um, got very, very inspired by the type of gardens I worked in out there. And eventually, I had was originally from Mississippi and Illinois and decided to move back east and Got an invitation from some friends in Eureka Springs to come up there and visit, and I totally fell in love with the area, especially around the Little Buffalo area, and started to make a move up here, found a job with, a, actually, I brought a, a load of watermelons up here from a farm I was on in Natchez, Mississippi, and wow. I sold them to Ozark Cooperative Warehouse, which at that time was on Dixon Street, next to Ozark Natural Foods. And uh, came to the farmer's market and fell in love with the farmer's market on the downtown square and started asking around about, well, are there some other organic growers bringing in produce around here? 
And they put me in touch with a couple of people. And I went out there and got a job with one of them, moved my yurt up here from Mississippi and put it on that property down south of Huntsville and started helping this guy out who was doing a little farmer's market in Eureka Springs. Okay. And uh, joined up with Michael Tree Planning. We were uh, tree planters out of state. That's how we basically made our first money toward our property. But we found that property, which was an abandoned blueberry farm in South Carroll County in the spring of 1984. And that was our first big break was to find that 40-acre piece of property with already seven years, about 2,000 seven-year-old blueberries on it. So we joined the farmer's market and we started selling blueberries and Every summer, we would put in more and more and more raised bed gardens, terraced gardens there. And in the wintertime, we'd go away and go tree planting. And so we've had a long relationship with a co-op. At the time, the co-op was on uh, right just there south of the square, south of the jail in a big house. Sure. And so we started buying all of our bulk product there. Of course, in college, I had my diet had become radicalized, started eating whole wheat <laughs> flour and granola and tofu and all those things. So we would buy all of our food in bulk. And then we'd ha- actually, we'd buy lots of bulk food to take with us on the road tree planting. And we would take all of our canned garden vegetables with us in a big van to go tree planting in the wintertime. So, um, yeah, I mean, it took uh, many years to build up the production garden to the point where we actually had enough product that we had wholesale production in addition to our CSA and our farmer's market production. Mm-hmm. And we always had cut flowers along with the vegetables. And we were certified from from the get-go. I think we were certified in 1986 by the Ozark Organic Growers Association so that we could sell our blueberries. And of course, I was trained in organics, so we've never done anything else. We've always been organic. You know, people hear organic all the time, and and I know a lot has changed over the years. But from your perspective, given that that's all that you've ever known as a producer of crops, what is the significance of organic food in your mind? Well, you know, back in the Mid-80s when we started producing, organic was an informal term. Yeah. People didn't have, uh, there certainly wasn't a legal definition of it. We would have people advertising their product as organic um, at the farmer's market or at ONF or anywhere, but there were no set parameters about what that meant. Usually it meant people were not using any form of chemical or uh, fertilizer or insecticides or herbicides. Mm-hmm. Generally, that was understood. Yep. But people would come to us at farmer's market occasionally and ask us if organic meant we were growing it in water. <laughs> <laughs> they had it confused with hydroponics. Sure, right? sure. And so back at that time, the organic certification situation was very scattered across the U.S. There were little independent organizations that were certifying their growers as organic, but there wasn't a national standard. Okay. The national standard didn't happen until 2002. So it was part of the – in the mid-90s, there was a lot of planning around how that was going to happen, how to create a national – law that defined organic. Well, in 2002, that law was put into place. There was a board formed, the National Organic Standards Board, that would determine what would be allowed in organic production. And then there was a label called OMRI, which is the Organic Materials Research Institute, that published a list of everything that could be used in organic production. So at that time, in 2002, when the national law came into effect, a lot of the smaller 
organizations that had been certifying actually went out of business because they had to meet standards with the USDA. Yeah. And they either, some of them them didn't have the wherewithal to do that. And then it became more expensive also to be certified. So there were a lot of growers like ourselves who decided to shelve it for a year or two just to see how it played out with our public. And after a year or so, we decided that we had spent 10 years training people what organic meant, and we wanted to use that word. So really, it's wow, I can't believe that. 2002, that's just from the date that we're recording this. That's just 21 years ago. It hasn't been that long. You would think that it's been, you know, in my mind, it's like, that's all we've been ever buying is organic food. But in reality, that's not the case. Well, you know, the organic movement in the U.S. started in the 1930s and 40s. One of the, the precursors of the organic, it's quite a, an interesting evolution, but starting with biodynamics in the 1920s and then J.I. Rodale in the 30s and 40s, who was following the work of a man named Howard, an Englishman who worked in India, who was finding out that the composting techniques of the traditional farmers in India were often superior, the types of results were superior to the chemical fertilization process. So J.I. Rodale, who eventually started the Rodale Institute and published Organic Farming and Gardening magazine for Mm -hmm. years and years and years, which we got for so many years and published New Farm magazine, he really popularized the idea of organic farming. So a lot of us were exposed to those materials starting in the 70s. And then, of course, Mother Earth News came along with the whole back to the land movement. And everybody was all about, well, let's grow organically. When we first bought our farm, we had some extension agents come out and check out our blueberries. And they told us that it was not going to be possible for us to grow product organically. It, It was just not possible. There were just too many insect pests. And That was conventional wisdom at the time, that it wasn't possible. And of course, now we know different because we've been doing it for this, our 39th year in production. (laughs) (laughs) And we've never used, now there are things that we stay away from because they have particular insect pests that are really difficult to deal with organically, especially tree fruits. Sure. can be very difficult around here because of our humidity in the summertime. Yeah. So, you know, as a grower, as growers, we find our way through this kind of complex puzzle of what grows well here, what doesn't grow as well. We don't push back when we have so many problems. It looks like it's just going to be forever a losing battle against a certain type of insect. But there are lots of cultural things we can do. For instance, so we have a, a big problem with something called a harlequin bug that gets on all of the cabbage family crops in the summertime. And we've heard from another grower that what they do is they just eliminate all that family of crops from their fields in the middle of the summer. They eliminate the host because it's not possible to spray them all. They're really hard to kill with organic sprays. But if you eliminate all the hosts for just like even one month and they don't have any place to live, then you can start over with those crops again in the fall. Okay. And you don't have that pest on them. Yeah. So there are tricks that accumulate over time. And when you have a, an active network of organic growers like we do in this area, thankfully, we have, you know, regular gatherings where we get together and we share that type of information. Hey, what are you guys doing about this problem? Or, you know, what's selling well for you at farmers markets? So we have a very active network of growers that are sharing information. Yeah. So there's really, it's, I would say it's more collaborative than a competition. 
with your fellow growers. That... If you're smart, it's collaborative. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so. If you're a newbie, you might feel competitive, but it, in the end, it doesn't pay to be competitive. It pays to make friends with your, your fellow farmers. Especially those that have been there and done that. Yeah. 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 yeah we've, we've learned. I mean, unfortunately, the most important lessons are the ones that cost you a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked off air before we started this a little bit about the back to land movement. And I was telling you my familiarity with that topic and subject, but I would love for you just to kind of give our audience just a quick snippet into what the back to land movement is as far as you're concerned. Well, I I can give you, you know, my personal take on it, which was, you know, here I'm somebody who was interested in biology and everything biological and ecology when the science of ecology was first being formulated. And what I found out, you know, at university and right afterwards when I started working for an organic gardening program, a community program, was that I was much happier working outside as a part of nature rather than studying it as an objective science. Mm -hmm. And so this kind of hands-on integration in the natural world became something that I was going to pursue as a lifestyle and a profession. Okay. I wasn't going to be happy just looking at it from the outside. Also, at the same time, you, you know, people were starting to hit the wall with the types of job prospects that they might have that were traditionally associated with success, with good incomes, whether it be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, a white collar worker. We could see the stress levels that our parents had in some of their jobs, even though they were successful in a societal uh, normative way. They, there are costs. And so one thing that really brought that home for me, I was a junior year abroad program student in Paris and I was in school. I was studying embryology and biochemistry and uh, ecology. And slowly I became quite depressed. I wasn't like a big city guy. I yeah. was from sort of smaller towns here in the States. And even though I love being in France, I could tell that the weight of living in a high-paced urban environment was taking its toll on me. And I decided to take a semester off and I went to work on an organic, uh, well, on a, on a dairy farm, a small dairy farm in the Alps in Germany. And within two weeks, I was so happy. <laughs> I was just like super happy. I had a real smile on my face. Yeah. You know? And that told me something about my particular orientation towards work. And so that led me to want to do outdoor work in the natural world. And it just all kind of fit together for me. So I think, you know, if you want to talk about the back to land movement in general, it has a lot of those same elements in it where, and we have this same thing happening now with young people. Young people are very idealistic and they get super troubled by the state of the world's ecology. Yeah. You know, the inability of of governments to deal with those types of problems in a timely way that takes so long for the wheels of government to grind into action. And so in order to not lose hope, especially as a young person, idealistic young person, if you can put your shoulder to the wheel on something that's positive, that's tangible, that can be your lifeline to having a good outlook toward your community and toward your life in general. And there's so many young people that are kind of lost in our current world. And that it was the same in my generation too. Yeah. 
you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, you can only spend so much time in psychedelic land. <laughs> Eventually you have to yes, get back to work. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's super, what I find here on our farm too, is that we have young people come in and help us every summer. And, you know, for them, it's all new, but they're coming into this kind of, they realize that a different world is possible. They can see it in front of them. And when they start working that way, their their confidence grows about what's actually possible in the world. Yeah. I mean, I think that's exciting to me. And, and I know that, as I had told you, I heard from a number of board members about, you know, the back to land movement and the group of folks that were very instrumental in a lot of the the way that the co-op has has grown over the years. Your interactions with the co-op started 20 plus years ago or more than that? Probably more than that. Um, I know we were selling some things to the co-op when it was on Dixon Street. So okay. that might have been over 20 years ago. Yeah. It was always a natural relationship for us. You know, we, we shop there. We're part of the definitely part of the clientele of that makes the co-op work. And, you know, well, we have the same type of values. Mm-hmm. More recently, I'd say in the last, in the past 20 years, there was a movement on the part of some of the public, some of whom were our friends who were following us at the farmer's market, that they really wanted the co-op to start selling more locally grown product. Because a lot of the organic produce was coming from larger farms in California and coming through larger distributors. And it's pretty easy for a produce manager to look down the list of what's available and just mark it off and get it delivered. Whereas the the problems of bringing in locally grown produce and developing relationships with local producers, it's much more complex and Case in point, you know, you can have salad mix available this week for two weeks, and then it, then you're going to be out for a little while, and then you might have something else here for two weeks. It's like it's not something that the produce manager is able to pin down on their calendar as being consistently available, and that is the main problem with locally grown product. Yeah. However, once the, the co-op decided it was going to have this attitude that it was going to buy as much locally grown produce as possible that was available. Then things started to shift. And we, every time I would call the the produce manager and say, we've got this is, yeah, bring it on in. Yeah, (laughs) bring it on in. And as much as they, they basically had a welcoming attitude to try to buy as much as they could. Not, of course, they didn't want to have, you know, surpluses that were going to go to waste. but. The attitude was there that, yes, we want to try to foster this relationship with as many local producers as possible. And that has really changed the produce department at ONF in the past 20 years. Sure. Yeah. And it's it has increasingly gotten better and better. And as I look at it today, the day, you know, as uh, just as recently as yesterday when I was in there, I was I always marvel at what is available and with the knowledge in my head that, man, most of this produce is locally sourced, which is kind of cool. And so that is, and I know all of it is good for you. And that, that's the key piece that I think is important. And a lot of people don't realize that you can't necessarily go into every grocery store and see something comparable like that, or at least that experience here in Northwest Arkansas. Another important piece of this is that ONF has always tried to pay the growers 
a decent price for their product. And that has meant often that the in-store price, you know, after the store markup is put on it, is going to be higher than you would buy conventional produce at another local grocery store. Yeah. But that is the reason so many small growers are able to sell. And when I say small grower, I mean anywhere from half an acre to 10 acres. Sure. And how many? You have 40 acres? We have 40 acres, but only two full acres are in intensive production. Okay. I got you. So it's, you can produce a huge amount of product on even just two acres with intensive methods. Yeah. And so that's where – now, we have all different kind of produce of producers for the produce department at ONF. You know, we have tree fruit people. We have meat people. We have – so we have people on different scales. Right. But the people that are producing vegetables for the co-op are generally on fairly small scales. But by paying a decent price for that product, it allows those people to stay in business. If you have to sell, if you go to another outlet, if you try to go to another outlet, a regular grocery store, yeah, and sell, first of all, it's not possible. Yep. They don't want to deal with you because you're not in their production stream. Sure. You know, they don't have the, the call for locally grown like the ONF customers demand. But then the price that you would get would be so low that you would have to expand your production by 10 times in order to make any money doing it. And so there goes the lifestyle. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. It's all connected. So it's important for the ONF customers to understand how that picture works. Okay. And, you know, I, I know you mentioned something else that I, I really wasn't aware of, but it was also kind of the history of the farmer's market here in Fayetteville, which is unique. I mean, it, yes, we have a farmer's, there's a, there's a little farmer's market in Springdale. There's, there's one in Rogers. There's definitely one in Bentonville. But the Fayetteville farmer's market is unique. And, and I know that there is some connection and relationship with the co-op from that perspective. But I'd love for you just to kind of talk about the farmer's market a little bit and why you know, the next time that somebody, whoever's listening to this, the next time that they visit the farmer's market, they may look at it differently. Well, our farmer's market, you know, is it's become a jewel and it's been become what we consider to be the heart of the Fayetteville community in many ways. But it wasn't always that way. Um, we had Marcella Thompson this past weekend tell us the history of this at our uh, our annual farmer's market member meeting. You know, the farmer's market was started in 1973, and Marcella and her husband, Glenn, her late husband, Glenn, were forward-thinking enough that in their initial founding of the Articles of Incorporation, and they're going to the city council and getting a special city ordinance to reserve the places on the square for the vendors to come in Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays, and then... Our system of commissions, which is the percentage that the farmers pay to the market organization for being there, and also the way we pick spots, the kind of democratic way we pick spots on the square for our farms based on a point system by how much commission that we pay. You know, it's a very interesting kind of unique system. But the main thing, one of the wonderful things that they realized at the time is that you can't have a farmer's market and have a lot of reselling of product that's not grown by the vendor because it destroys the price structure. If you have any type of product dumping, you yeah. have large farms that want to dump two or three truckloads of watermelons and they'll just sell them at any cost just to get rid of them. And then you have the you know small half or acre 
vegetable farmer who's growing specifically the for the farmer's market and you have somebody come in and dump three truckloads of watermelons on the market at a time when everybody else has the watermelons, it just doesn't work. Yeah. And so from the beginning, that was not allowed. I fell in love with the market in 1981 when I came up here with a load of watermelons from Mississippi to sell to Ozark Cooperative Warehouse. And I looked at it and it was in this beautiful downtown square and the city had spent a lot of money landscaping around the square. So it was, they were even hired a violinist to come and play for the gardens <laughs> when the gardens were first put in. Wow. And so there were musicians there and, you know, it's just a great community vibe. I kind of fell in love with it. And when I moved up here to the Ozarks, I wanted to be within an hour of Fayetteville and Eureka Springs so that we could market here. And that's how we started looking for property is because we knew that we were going to grow for this market. Yeah. So, and and that, yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And and so you found a place and it's within an hour's drive of here. Yeah. It's 50 miles east of here. But the way you described it is that it's, it's kind of like a utopia for you in terms <laughs> of, you know, I mean, I, that might be a little hyperbole, but I mean, it is, there is a drastic, a dramatic difference between where you are there. And even when you come here, right. And I think you likened it to like the urban to the rural. And so I'd, I'd love for you just to expand upon that just a little bit for some of our listeners, because I think a lot of people listening to this podcast, sometimes we forget that we are surrounded by a lot of natural landscapes are all around Arkansas, period, but specifically Northwest Arkansas that lend themselves to the kind of lifestyle that you have and the kind of business that you're able to operate within an hour's drive of here. Yeah, this morning I got up and went out early around 630 because I wanted to burn off some a big pile of bamboo stalks that we've been harvesting. And we're down in a little valley that's completely forested all around us. We're surrounded by the forest with hills. And down at the very bottom, right below our house, is this beautiful clear stream that runs into the Kings River. It's called Dry Fork Creek. And on a misty morning like this morning, there'll be this mist rising off of the water and kind of slowly moving downhill through the valley. And, you know, with this beautiful kind of spring-like weather we're having the last couple of days, it's just it's sort of intoxicating, really, for somebody like <laughs> me to, to just to be able to wake up and be there and then have my life as a gardener be there. And I get to stay home all the time, except when I come to town to sell right. or, you know, buy supplies. And my fantasy at the time and now my reality was that it was somehow possible to farm on that small scale using organic methods and to make a living it might not be a rich man's living right but it would be a satisfying life and it has turned out to be that you know it has turned out to be all of that and more and i feel like when you're farming like that out in the boondocks, in the rural areas, there are not a lot of people to talk to, to share that experience because very few of us have that opportunity. I think something like 1% of the U.S. population is involved in agriculture. It's very, right. very small. Right. I was in Senegal a month ago and 70% of the population is still involved in village hmm. agriculture. Amazing. You know, and we just don't have that. Our agriculture and rural Social landscape is very fragmented. So I feel like that the, the seed is there for little operations like ours. We have a certain cultural renewal potential that we're sharing with our urban 
customers who are here in town. I think I was telling you just a little bit earlier, it was it was probably 20 years ago when I, I would see painters come to market and they would set up their easels on the corner and they would be painting our market display with all the flowers and the vegetables and stuff. And I started to realize what a symbolic meaning that had for people who live in town to be able to touch that beauty and that peace of the countryside. That's part of the reason they were coming to the square. It wasn't just to listen to music and it wasn't just to visit with their friends. It's because they were in touch with some very important energy that was coming from the countryside and it allowed them to be a part of it. Yeah. And we do the same thing when we come to town. Most of us that are doing the type of work I'm doing right now, we're college educated people. We, you know, it's in my father's time, living out and doing farming like that was associated with poverty and ignorance. And now we have satellite internet. We're in touch with everyone all the time with right. our cell phones. It's just not the same. And we have university libraries at the touch of our fingertips, you know, and we have a situation where so much of the population lives in urban areas that they've created concentrated wealth that we can draw on when we come to town and sell our products. Right. So we live in a very different era than my dad did. So this constant interaction between the farmers bringing their product to town and the people coming to market, like this is a very healthy thing for our society. I think so. And and to me, you know, the co-op is kind of like a microcosm of that, right? Because you have this centerpiece in the community, not unlike the farmer's market, but this is open, you know, almost 24-7. I mean, it's open all the time and it creates an outlet, right? Because it's not like the farmer's market runs year round. And so the co-op is there year round and it's able to kind of provide that outlet for all of the things that you're able to grow with your hands and bring to market. What are some of your favorites, the things that you bring to market through the co-op that tend to be tried and true year in and year out. <laughs> well, you know, we um, we started the the flower department at O and F. Okay, and so I got to talking to Pauline Thiessen years and years ago when it was over in Evelyn Hills, and we had had one vendor selling some flowers there on Friday evenings at the entranceway. But I thought, well, let's you know, let's see if we can start some type of permanent sales here. And Pauline said, well, okay, well, let's build this uh, display up near the register and we can fill it up. And so for the first at least three years, we would bring in bouquets on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. Mm -hmm. And then we would replace – it was all on commission. We would replace everything that didn't sell with fresh bouquets. And that went fine. But I tell you, when the store moved into the new location, the sales really, really expanded. Okay. And a part of it was the location – where people from the college were coming over and buying stuff. And it was just more centrally located. And I really like bringing in those flowers because, you know, I'm proud of the way they look and I'm proud of how they hold up. And we get such great feedback and we get people like stopping us as we're pulling the cart into the store. It's like, oh, my God, you just brought all these in. And then, and then the people in the, you know, homestead department was like, well, people are asking about your flowers. When are they going to start? So, right. That's super fun, you know. And then um, for our produce, you know, we do a lot of bag mixes of spinach and salad mix and things like that. And Which I'm a big fan of. Well, uh, my that's wife cool. and I are huge. Yeah, I'm we love glad. that. Yeah. We like doing that because I love salad. But, you know, even one of the checkers once, she said, she saw me checking out and she knew that we were supplying the salad over there in the produce department. She said, do you guys talk to the nature spirits? And I said, well, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, 
I said, I, I guess I do, but mostly I'm just saying, excuse me, or I'm sorry. <laughs> she said, because your grains are just magic. And, you know, that type of feedback is what farmers live for, you know. Oh, of course. Of <laughs> course. I love, I love that. Your greens are magic. <laughs> well, so what, you know, we, we've kind of talked, we've kind of gone all over the place with this conversation about your history and about your experience um, here in Northwest Arkansas and what that's meant for you personally as well as professionally. I mean, what would you tell the uninitiated that are just brand new to the co-op about A, the importance of the co-op, but then also just the importance of being able to support the local industry, the local agriculture industry that's here in Northwest Arkansas? Well, if if we're going to have an alternative agriculture, meaning an alternative to large-scale conventional production, which uses lots of chemicals and generally comes from way far away, if you're going to try to foster a local network of farms that supply food to local people and for that to be lively – it has to have the support of consumers who care where they spend their dollars. And that's really the crux of the issue for all of us that buy food especially, that every time we spend money on food, we're making a choice of what we vote for. And everybody has lines that they draw. Well, I'm not paying that for organic butter, you know, <laughs> or I can't pay that for those peaches from Colorado. That's fine. But to just Make the choice so that it's not always low prices. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's we have to all do that as concerned consumers because we are the ones who are creating the agriculture of tomorrow through our choices of how we want the landscape to be treated. Buying something that's organically grown or naturally grown is not something that you just do for yourself. It's something that you do for the environment. Because it implies a certain way of taking care of the environment. And the local farming community, the lo local rural community, whether you know it or not and whether you like it or not, are taking care of the natural world just outside the city limits. Yeah. So it's in everybody's interest that we promote these type of eco-friendly practices as much as we possibly can. Absolutely. Wow, yeah, I mean that that's um you put that very well and and certainly I agree with you. And I think for a lot of people it's just the things that they can't see, right? That are just below the surface if you will. And I don't have the privilege of kind of being behind you or your shadow as you do what you do on a daily basis, but clearly we we are able to see the fruits of it every time we walk into the co-op or every time we come to the farmers market. So I think it's important for people to recognize that what that means to our ecosystem as a whole and you know how we need to take advantage of it and support especially any of the local providers and producers that are making an effort to bring healthy wholesome food to our tables on a regular basis. So, you know, I want to say thank you personally and I appreciate just kind of like the lesson that you've shared on this particular episode, not just about Dripping Springs, but more importantly about this whole system that we're in here, this ecosystem that is in Northwest Arkansas and how the co-op plays a role in that, how the farmer's market plays a role in that, and how there are a lot of people 
that were part of what we're calling the back to land movement that have been the backbone of what we're able to experience from healthy choices that we have in in our grocery stores, especially what's offered at the co-op. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. So You're welcome. Yeah. So listen, you know, Mark, when you and, and Michael aren't, aren't out there tending to the soil, I mean, what do you, what do you guys do for fun? Play the accordion. Okay. <laughs> That's interesting. So you're, I guess you're in a place where you don't have to worry about uh, upsetting your neighbors with that. So. Oh, no. They'd start dancing. <laughs> so, I love that. I love that. Playing the accordion. Well, that's cool. Well, Mark, I, I certainly, if anyone wants to learn more about Dripping Springs Garden, where would you like them to go? They can go to our website, drippingspringsgarden.com, or they can go to our, we have a Facebook page, Dripping Springs Garden. Okay, absolutely. I'm not super active on Instagram. (laughs) Okay. Um, I need to put a younger person in charge of that. There you go. But uh, yeah, you can see some cool pictures and um, kind of get an idea of what's going on out there. And we do have some public tours periodically during the summer. I was going to ask you about that. I I think I may have to grab my family and and, and, (laughs) and convince you to let us come visit you guys at some point in time and check out the farm. I think that would sound like a lot of fun. Yeah, I would recommend that of anybody who's super interested in good food and local growing. It's whenever they have an opportunity to go out to a farm, you'll never be the same afterwards when you actually see where the cherry tomatoes are growing and how they're harvested. It's It'll make quite an impression. I would imagine so. Well, I'm definitely going to take you up on that. And, and certainly, again, I, I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule and sitting down with us today on uh, Ozark Natural Foods, the co-op podcast. This is uh, certainly a an important program to not just create awareness of the of the co-op, but it's also an important program to create awareness of all of the people that play a role in even allowing the co-op to exist, first and foremost. So I personally want to thank you both to you, Mark, and to Michael for all the work that you guys do at Dripping Springs. And, and we certainly look forward to uh, sitting down with you at some point in time in the future to further the conversation. Well, thanks for having us. Uh, ONF's a very big part of our income picture. And we are super happy that it's here and are happy that there's an interest in organic production like ours. Absolutely. And I think it, it bears repeating to anybody listening to this, if you are, are going to the co-op and spending your hard-earned dollars there, just know that on the other side of that are people like Mark and Michael from Dripping Springs Garden and so many of the other providers to the co-op that their livelihood is dependent upon your support of the co-op. And so we certainly want to encourage you to keep doing that. And as you walk into that co-op and you see those beautiful flowers, know that somebody lovingly cut those flowers and prepared them in such a way, because I got to tell you, those bouquets, they are absolutely amazing. And there's something about flowers, fresh cut flowers that just set things apart. And so uh, I certainly appreciate you guys bringing a little bit of color to our our regular day whenever we are able to walk into that that co-op. So thanks again. You bet. Absolutely. Well, folks, there you have it. Another episode of the Ozark Natural Foods Co-op Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you got something out of this and learned a little bit more about organic farming, a little bit about the back to land movement, uh, and, and certainly a little bit about Dripping Springs Garden and what it takes to work a farm locally here in Northwest Arkansas. And the simple fact that, you know, we only see the end result, but there's so much more 
that is a part of it. And so we really appreciate Mark taking time out today to to share a little bit of that story. We will be back with another new episode of the Ozark Natural Foods Co-op Podcast soon. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and we'll see you later. Thanks for tuning in to the Ozark Natural Foods, the co-op podcast. Whether you are new to the area and looking for a healthy grocery store, or you've been here for ages but didn't know the whole story about Ozark Natural Foods, the co-op, this podcast, is one of the best places to start. For more information about the co-op, please visit our website at onf.coop to learn more. That's onf.coop. At Ozark Natural Foods, the co-op, we mean it when we say keeping it local since 1971.